Hello and welcome to the Inside Briefing Extra, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Gemma Tetlow, Chief Economist at the IFG, stepping briefly back into the presenter's chair to bring you this bonus episode to discuss Rishi Sunak's second budget. This might have been the Chancellor's second budget, but in many ways it was also a budget of firsts. First increase in corporation tax since 1974, the highest level of public debt and highest tax burden since the late 1960s, the largest net tax rise since 1993. To chew over all the fiscal events of this week, I'm joined by Tom Pope, IFG Senior Economist. Hi, Tom. Hi, Gemma. Jill Rutter, IFG Senior Fellow and one-time Treasury Press Secretary, is also with us. Hi, Jill. Hi, Gemma. And Giles Wilkes, another IFG Senior Fellow and former Special Advisor to both Vince Cable and Theresa May, is also joining us again. Hello, Giles. Hi, Gemma. Rishi Sunak builds the budget as a three-part plan, continuing to support British people and businesses through this moment of crisis, fixing the public finances once we're on our way to recovery, and beginning the work of building our future economy. But before we dive into those details, let's start by looking at his announcements as a whole. Jill, I came across a lovely quote recently from Ken Clark when he presented his first budget, saying that it was like a lion tamer trying out his act for the first time. If last year was Sinek's practice run, what did we see this year now he's had time to hone his act? Well, it's quite interesting that you just referred to it as Rishi Sunak's second budget, because I think by other counts, it's his 14th or 15th attempt to reset the sort of you know overall economic support framework during the pandemic. So it's not that unfamiliar in coming to it. It was, of course, his sort of second go at doing the big sweep of the budget that we did have his sort of, you know, not quite uh, one year spending review before. Um I think he's developing a bit of a style. I mean, you know, he seems to go lighter on the jokes than Philip Hammond, a slightly strange phrase to say. Uh, I watched it on catch up and I have to say it, I didn't find it desperately memorable, but maybe that was because, you know, we had been subjected to so much in advance. Um, The interesting thing is when I was at the Treasury, we used to focus very much on what we called budget day, but budget day seems very much buried in the history books. And now we have sort of, you know, the budget sort of phony war, budget week, budget month, with Chancellor appearing on the Sunday programmes, releasing his uh, trailer, personalised trailer and various other things. So I think it's it's quite odd. I don't think there's a distinctive Sunak's one, but he is, I have to say, as a former Treasury Press Secretary, former person in charge of tax policy in the Treasury. He's an absolute dream of a Chancellor to brief. He seems to know all the stats, be completely comfortable with just dropping them in, in a sort of very unrehearsed way. Doesn't seem to fluff them up as far as I can see. And uh, he's very good at getting his lines across, doesn't deviate, but also looks as though he's engaging with the questions. So actually, for somebody who's such an inexperienced politician, was so inexperienced when he came into the Treasury, He's really, you know, if you like that sort of thing, an incredibly class act. We did have a few kind of new innovations with his press conference, taking questions from the public and all that sort of thing. Do you think that that sort of more direct approach in the brand Rishi is is effective for him? Well, this is quite interesting. I think most chances actually do have a sort of brand. I work for Ken Clark as his press secretary. And Ken had a distinct brand, though I think if we'd said, Chancellor, do you want to do a five minute, 40 second self-promoting video? Ken would probably have told us that he was going off to the jazz club instead. But he had a very sort of distinctive brand, not least the sort of, you know, 
uh, alleged hush puppies were actually extraordinarily expensive shoes, but we didn't let on and things like that. So, uh, so I think, you know, we have to remember Rishi Sunak had lower, less known about him than any, almost any other chancellor in history because he had so little backstory by being catapulted into that position in his meteoric rise last year. So maybe he feels he needs a bit of bolstering there. I thought the press conference itself didn't really work. It was quite interesting that compared to the COVID press conference, as far as I could see, BBC One left Pointless on and relegated him to the news channel. At least that's what seemed to be happening when I was trying to find it. Uh, His opening statement read too much like an executive summary of the budget, frankly. And then the questions from the economic journalists were, were sort of fine, but he was too good to be rattled by them. I thought it was very interesting that the one bit that sort of struck any sort of uh, blow, landed any sort of blow on the Chancellor, was George Parker quizzing him about precisely how the government had allocated, uh, selected the candidate cities, candidate towns for the uh, for the levelling up towns fund. And that did seem to sort of slightly knock him off what otherwise was incredibly smooth course. I'm not sure that that you know, adds much to human wisdom. Uh, it doesn't seem to be a substitute for an in-depth interview. I thought the mistake, actually, of the Treasury's coverage was to decide to use the Today Programme 810 interview uh, as a sort of photo op. Of course, it's on the radio uh, and do it from T's side, where you could see why they wanted the photographs, the chance on a high-vis jacket. But it did mean that it was a very difficult interview because of the technical problems of doing it so remotely. So I think, you know, I don't think that made that much difference to, uh, at the end of the day. I'm not sure we'll go on seeing those press conferences as a major time in the schedule. I think they used to press conference the day after, which, of course, allows people like, you know, your and Tom's former colleagues at the IFS, people like Resolution, to do their really in-depth analysis. And that's actually what you're really worried about, is not the immediate reaction. If you can't manage that, frankly, you've done really, really badly. It's when people actually have been through those detailed numbers, the bits that didn't quite make it into your announcement, looked at the overall shape of actually where have you got this money from that really matters. And maybe we should uh, suggest to the Chancellor that actually if he wants to do a proper press conference, he needs to do it the day after. So, Giles, now we are a couple of days beyond the budget. How do you think it's been going down overall? Um I mean, first of all, first point, I mean, I admire Jill for the volume of budget media she seems to absorb. I, I'm kind of full by the afternoon and frantically word searching through PDFs for fascinating words like business investment and fund. Um, so I, I wasn't aware of all these other sort of spin. I find all of that stuff vaguely revolting, making myself sound about 40 years older than I am. But how's it, how's it then gone down? Well, I'm also old enough to remember those um, budgets that Jill no doubt helped put together in the early 90s and how difficult it was to raise money to do difficult things like fiscal tightening, let alone raise taxes on companies and so forth. So given the context, um, he appears to have done really well. He's done something quite astonishing in corporation tax with the caveat that maybe he won't actually end up doing it. I'm sure he's hoping that some kind of a growth, um, get, uh, good luck, comes comes through and means that he doesn't have to raise it as much. So, but then again, at the same time, as we've been observing in our conversations frequently, there's many different aspects to this budget. He also gets to give away tens of billions of pounds in the short term 
and do all sorts of exciting stimulus in the medium term and only in the long term do the tough stuff. So maybe I'm letting him off a bit, saying didn't it go down well? People aren't feeling the pain, even of the income tax threshold rise for another 12 months or so. But no, I thought it went down okay. There's a lot of scratch heads going on about the combination of business investment ideas that have come along there. I've been frantically emailing Tom to try to understand how these various deductions work and what is neutral and what is not neutral and how much business investment does this uh, country really need? So follow Tom if you want a proper answer to this. But I can't, um, I can't yet see that there's been a transformation of the country's economic prospects from this incredible throwing of money around. And I still think, and I'll, I'll be writing on the IFG shortly about this, that there's the, there's the sense that they don't really have a plan. And although it's understandable that in the short term, the COVID stuff has to be improvised and the timing has to change all the time, depending on what the virus is like. And I appreciate that in the medium term, he's got to be a fiscal chancellor in a way he never expected to be. Not to have a long-term structural plan for what all of these phrases like levelling up and British science superpower and global Britain means is a bit disappointing by now. I'd like them to have a microeconomic industrial strategy and they really don't have one. Tom, Louis XIV's finance minister famously declared that the art of taxation consists in so plucking the goose as to obtain the largest possible amount of feathers with the smallest possible amount of hissing. As Giles just suggested, Rishi Sunak does seem to have managed to fill a sizable hole in the public finances with a net tax rise on a scale we haven't seen for several decades without provoking much in the way of that hissing. Do you think that's sustainable? It, it is kind of remarkable that um, so the OBR thinks that the COVID crisis will do long-term damage to the economy. And that means that without any fiscal action, either last November or now, we'd have been looking at something like a, a 50 billion current budget deficit in 2025. So that's borrowing 50 billion pounds just to cover day-to-day spend before you even consider investment spending. But on the current plans, Rishi Sunak has closed all of that whole lot up, both through the 30 billion or so of tax rises that he set out on Wednesday, but also through across both last November and this March, about 17 billion pounds cuts in plans for public service spending. Um, but that's why I think that this balanced budget forecast is built on some shaky foundations. Do we really think it's plausible that we now want to spend £17 billion less in 2025 than we did before the pandemic um, when you factor in possible extra spending related to COVID, um, fixing coronavirus backlogs, maybe more money to ensure a sustainable um, and more resilient NHS to deal with future shocks? Um, And that's before you even think about the the other public services that have had big cuts over the last 10 years. And on these current plans, they would have even more cuts. And I think the Chancellor will have to address this quite quickly because this multi-year spending review is coming later this year. And I don't think um, the numbers in the budget are really going to be um, sustainable on that score. So I think he's going to have to spend more on public services. I think he is likely going to have to spend more on a more generous welfare state as well. Do we really think that um, universal credit is going to be cut back by £20 a week abruptly this September, um, I'm sceptical. And and then when it comes to the tax rises, as as Giles mentioned, those tax rises don't happen for a little while. I can imagine that the Chancellor's going to face some lobbying from uh, his neighbour every time uh, he comes to freeze tax thresholds, and that's going to mean more people going into uh, the higher rate band. Remember that Boris Johnson wanted to increase the higher rate band from £50,000 to £80,000. That was his pledge 
in the Conservative Party leadership contest. Now it's set to stay at about £50,000 for the next five years. Do, do you really think that Boris Johnson isn't going to try to get that increased a little bit every year the Chancellor comes to make that decision? So for all of those reasons, I think both the spending plans and the tax plans are probably you know, not going to hold water in the next five years. What the Chancellor will be hoping for, and Giles also alluded to this, is that he doesn't need to um, have spending plans as tight or tax increases as high because the economy is going to do much better than the OBR expects. And actually, COVID won't have done as much long-term damage to the economy. Um, we should all hope that happens. That would be good news for all of us. But of course, forecasts can be too optimistic, just as easy as they've been too pessimistic. In the last 10 years, I need to make more money betting on the downside of forecasts than the upside. Jill, you've been involved in and watching uh, policy for a long time now. And there are some sort of famous examples of the past of policies that have unraveled when they actually, when the, the sort of cold reality of them became clear. So Gordon Brown's attempt to get rid of the 10p starting rate of income tax, uh, George Osborne's attempt to cut tax credits back. Is there anything that really struck out, stuck out for you uh, on Wednesday that you think is, is going to unravel when people really realise what it means? I think the really interesting question is when does the Chancellor legislate some of these changes? And I think that, you know, he's obviously got a following wind at the moment, but does he put through his corporation tax rises in this finance bill or does he hold them back until uh, he actually expects them to take effect? So we've seen that, you know, he's going to legislate, we assume, for his super deduction, uh, which is coming in now, but the tax rise comes in in two years' time? Or is he going to confront MPs in two years' time with the prospect of that tax rise, you know, potentially on the cusp of election? Of course, one of the things that is easier, and it's amazing the degree of public support for the budget, um, is that people do quite like what they perceive to be other people paying taxes and bad companies, you know, who've made loads of profits during the pandemic. Well, of course, let's hit them. Uh, I think, you know, many economists don't think companies themselves actually go to the chancellor and write a giant check that actually, you know, someone, either people who work for the company or shareholders of the company probably actually end up bearing the burden of that. But it is quite a convenient device, particularly when you're locked in as the chancellor was by the triple lock and he didn't take the sort of options some people thought he might to suspend those because of the pandemic. I think it's also interesting, does he come back to Parliament every year and have to override? Remember, one of the very few examples of a very successful parliamentary revolt, which gave us that Rooker Wise provision that uh, automatically indexes those uh, those thresholds there. Does he come back every year and say, yes, again, hello, guys, I'm back to do it? Or can he find some way where actually that he just disapplies it for the next three years and gets it over in one thing and changes the default, because that actually can make a bit of a difference to the crystallising event. The nightmare for the Chancellor must be, I think, uh, that it's not a Philip Hammond and National Insurance contributions, though we didn't see anything, actually. The Chancellor had trailed that he might do something about equalising the tax treatment of employed and self-employed, and I don't think that did pop out in this budget that, uh, that I recall. But uh, does he do anything that actually gives the people who are saying, actually, this, was, this wasn't a wise move, we shouldn't do it? Does it give them a sort of focusing event to revolt over? And I think the chance would do quite well to try and, uh, try and legislate as much of this budget now as he can, because that would sort of avoid future things. Um, 
But also, I mean, on the other side of the things, I mean, you know, we have eternal things like um, the Chancellor announcing in possibly the least surprising move of the budget that yet again for the 11th year he was freezing fuel duty in nominal terms. I do think at some point it'd be quite good if at least the OBR started saying, well, we're not going to count it anymore until you actually give some indication you might seriously contemplate putting this thing up, uh, because that's the other way in which the numbers can be too favourable, that actually tax increases that government claims to be committed to don't happen. That said, you know, stealthily not increasing thresholds is, of all the ways of raising tax, a relatively painless way of doing it may not be the most fiscally appropriate, but it actually is quite convenient politically. So I don't think he's got immediate problems. Uh, he might be worried down the line if he has to go back to Parliament in two years' time and say, look, now you've got to vote for this big hike in corporation tax. Jeff, I suppose one reason why uh, the budget might start to come apart is if the Labour opposition can construct a compelling narrative against it. What, how do you think Keir Starmer dealt with his reaction response to the budget? And do you think they've landed any blows on Sunak so far? I think they didn't immediately land blows. Um, and uh, particularly because in a lot of the short term actions that people feel and will be talking about the next day, Rishi Sunak did pretty much most of what they might have called for. I think what makes it really difficult for them is how he's made the numbers add up is by penciling in those very, very tight I would say probably impossibly tight departmental spending totals for the years ahead. And this is the same thing that wound me up to near distraction in the run up to the 2015 election, where the Conservatives were saying, hey, look at us, we're going to achieve fiscal balance. And, and they were doing so by implying that you could cut something like 60% off non-core budgets in the few years ahead. And I was wandering around pulling my hairs out. And of course, it turned out that we then added the money back in. There was no way we were ever going to cut that much money. So the question is whether it's different this year because the spending review is coming up and I have to fess up to all of these COVID-scarred departments how much money they're going to have. And um, and it's going to be very, very difficult. Um, I suspect that's the opportunity Labour has. And the best hit they've managed so far is about NHS pay rises, I think, because 1%, which is more generous than the rest of the public sector, is nevertheless incredibly mean in this kind of world and um and that's and it's not an easy decision to reverse it's not like free school meals with marcus rashford this would cost billions to fix so um that kind of decision i suspect is when the opposition will have a fairer crack at it much harder to do so in the short term Great. Well, let's dive in now to the three parts of Rishi Sunak's budget, starting with the continuation of extraordinary support for households and businesses while the COVID crisis continues. In his budget, Rishi Sunak announced that the main support schemes like the furlough scheme, the universal credit uplift and support for the self-employed will continue until the end of September. And some measures like the business rates cut and the VAT cut for hospitality will extend in some form through to the end of March next year. In the past 48 hours, I think I've heard people describing this from everything from the bare minimum that he could have done through to erring on the side of generosity. Tom, what was your take? So I think, I mean, the, the absolute bare minimum, given what they'd already committed to before, would have been continuing these schemes until the 21st of June, when the, the great unlocking is planned uh, based on uh, the current exit strategy. Um, in, in practice, I think they were never really going to... Um, Kind of cut it that close in a way. They've already said that the 21st of June is the earliest that they're going to um, unlock. And the Treasury doesn't want to be in a position yet again like they were in October of, 
of having the plan for restrictions change and yet have the um, support measures still set to expire. We ended up extending the furlough scheme um, on the 31st of October when it was meant to be um, abolished and replaced with something less generous the next day. So on that basis, I think continuing beyond uh, June for three months to September gives them a bit of a buffer zone and therefore is, is sensible. And what, what we have called for previously, and I think would be more sensible, is to explicitly tie uh, these measures to the public health restrictions and say that as long as there are public health restrictions, plus, say, one or two months afterwards as um, companies recover and businesses open up and the recovery gets going, we're going to keep uh, measures, the, this, these support measures in place. Um, but, but broadly, I think an end of September is probably about what I expected, conditional on them continuing to have this, this hard, hard deadline. Charles, one of the tweaks that Rishi Sunak did make to the types of government support on offer is, is the government back loans to businesses. Essentially, he's going to scale back the, the extent of guarantee that the government now provides. Does that make sense? And do you think the proposals overall now provide enough support to businesses as we exit? I will get off the fence and say it totally makes sense because, I mean, I've got sort of a, a, an IFG blog from about April last year, ahead of the bounce back loans, um, where I said, don't come out with 100% guarantees. It produces all sorts of perverse problems. In particular, when you end up with these things, you end up with the banks as agents to connect debt that's held by the taxpayers. How hard are the banks going to work at ruining their reputation by closing down people for a debt that isn't ultimately owed to them in extremists? So 100% guarantees are a case study in perverse consequences and can end up with a lot of firms either indebted and not paying back, which is bad, or indebted and paying back and being zombified, which isn't particularly good either. And finally, it means market incentives disappear. Now, I know the Chancellor believes in market incentives. He's been a markets man himself. And so reintroducing that gradually um, or to a small extent, as he's also doing with a furlough scheme in the job market, I just think makes sense for to to reintroduce some of that sort of painful discrimination that is what the free market is good for. So bravo to him. He's not gone for the absolutely popular option. He's gone for the more difficult and fiddly one. Um, but I think he's undoing a mistake he made about nine months ago when he lost nerve and said, OK, just do something that gets all the money out as quickly as possible. I'm tired of the Europeans sending money out faster. We're going to be doing National Audit Office examinations of the billions of bad debt and fraud in that system for many years to come. Let's move on then to talk about the second part of the budget, the fixing the public finances bit. Sunak laid out his broad objectives for public finances, that the government should borrow only for investment and that debt should start to fall relative to the size of the economy. And he presented a set of policy plans that are actually consistent with that by the end of the five-year forecast period, which he achieved principally through a substantial net tax rise, as Tom already mentioned. Um, Charles, there was a lot of debate ahead of the budget about whether the Chancellor really needed to do a fiscal consolidation yet, and the Labour opposition came out to say that they didn't think now was the right time for tax rises. Do you think Rishi Sunak got the balance right in the budget about what he did and the timing of it? I think he did in that um, a couple of things. Does he need um, consolidation? Yeah, if you're someone like me who's a public spending dove and thinks that we're going to need higher spending and spending ultimately needs to be funded, then he does need to set out some kind of plan. And this is partly a plea for me to have the government in a position where it has to fess up to what it has to do if it wants to do the things it wants to do. I don't like governments thinking they can get away with 
anything, regardless of the Keynesian dynamics around it. Uh, on the timing of things, I mean, taking demand out of the economy right now would have been a bad thing. You could argue that we're in a really weird position where demand is weak because the health restrictions say it's weak, not because there isn't spending power or inclination buried in there. We just don't know. We've never come out of this situation before. There are certainly some shattered balance sheets out there in in the household and business sector that should be supported if people are going to do the spending they want to do. But it's not like we were in 2008-9-10 when we had a truly terrible demand recession. Um, so I can understand people like Larry Summers over in the state saying, are you sure it's a lack of spending power we have right now? Against that, some people, including me, have wondered whether we've run the economy too cold for years now, and it's about time we tried the other thing. It would be just our luck to be trying it as a UK economy, just as our supply capacity is being shattered by a combination of a rather harsh Brexit and um, the COVID restructuring that needs to come, such that we do get some of that inflation. But if you are to err at all on any side, you want to be erring towards keeping demand running hot right now. And from that point of view, having the consolidation shifted to the right somewhere in 2023 and on corporate profits rather than on something more directly related to immediate household spending, he seems to have made that call about right. Tom, before the budget, you said that the Chancellor should use this opportunity to lay the ground for more radical tax reform rather than trying to implement a full package of tax rises immediately. Do you think he's ended up wasting an opportunity to do that? I do in a way, yes. And I suspect that anyone who has um, more political nass than me might, might disagree. But so the Chancellor has announced these quite big tax rises all in one go. There are really two of them. One, as we've already spoken about, the freeze and the personal allowances. That's quite a big uh, tax increase, but no one actually feels a, a loss from one day to the next in their, in their pay packet. It's just they don't get money that they would otherwise have got. And as Jill mentioned earlier, um, you don't see the damage from corporation taxes. As an economist, I would say that companies don't pay taxes and people do. And it's either going to be shareholders through lower profits or workers through lower wages or um, consumers through higher prices. But that's not a really visible thing that people see. And therefore, he's gone for tax rises that I think are sort of politically deliverable, albeit, as we mentioned before, there might be some challenges to fully deliver them when the time comes. And these aren't the worst taxes in the world. They're not sort of really distorted taxes that are um, making our system much worse. But nor are they taxes that are improving the structure of our system. Our tax system does have a bunch of really obvious weaknesses. The way we treat the self-employed versus employees um, is a real mess, and we should fix it. The way that we tax profit, uh, tax property, uh, rather, with um, with council tax based on prices in 1990 and a regressive rate structure, that's a real mess, and we should fix that. And um, you know, crises um, are very difficult for chances, but they can also open up an opportunity to do something on tax where there might not otherwise be that opportunity. And you wouldn't normally get away with implementing a £30 billion tax rise, for example. And I think it would have been a good opportunity now, as we think we're going to have to have a higher tax burden in the future. Let's design our system better so it's not discouraging economic activity and not distorting uh, the economy as much. And you probably couldn't have announced all of those tax rises in one go. You could have laid the ground for um, future tax rises um, so that maybe you'd be in a political position to implement them by April 2023, when he wants to start raising taxes anyway. So I think I'm probably being a bit harsh there. As I say, he didn't do more damage to the tax system with his tax rises, which is 
and better than can be said for some of the tax rises we've seen over the last 10 years, but also the tax system's not in a stronger place as a result. Jill, the plans Rishi Sunak laid out are the biggest net tax rise since Norman Lamont's March 1993 budget, when I think you were working in number 10. Um, actually, arguably looking back at that 1993 budget, that did some more radical things to improve the structure of the UK tax system. It, it attempted to increase uh, fat on domestic fuel to the same rate as other products. Um, it laid the groundwork to get rid of mortgage interest relief uh, on in the ta- uh, income tax system. So I don't know, how, how do you compare what Rishi Sunak has done this time to that 1993 budget? And I, I suppose some of that 1993 budget ended up not sticking in the end. Some of it ended up not sticking, and I think that was because of a bit of a sort of naive mishandling by the Treasury. I was actually, (laughs) I was in number 10 doing environment policy and had moved to number 10 from being, uh, doing tax policy in the Treasury. And I was absolutely uh, furious that no one had told me they were going to try and do this VAT on domestic fuel and power change, because had my uh, colleagues in number 10 told me they were thinking of doing that, I would have said, well, actually, if you're going to do that, you need to at the same time accompany it with a package to deal with another government objective, which was to deal with fuel poverty. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself uh, very vulnerable. And indeed, that was one reason why the whole thing came unstuck, with they had no answer there. And really interestingly, that actually had a negative, didn't have a negative halo effect. It's only a long term halo effect about making the Treasury very skeptical about green green tax policies because they thought that their move on domestic fuel and power would be massively uh, welcomed by green groups. Indeed, Friends of the Earth stuck their head above the parapet briefly. I think that lasted a week and said it was a good move and then were rapidly beaten back and said, no, it wasn't a good move after all, uh, after they realised there was a mass onslaught on normal amounts. And, of course, that's one reason why we ended up stuck uh, with the sort of slightly sort of odd treatment of tax and fuel and power. What, of course, the government then did do, and I think this is quite instructive and would have been an opportunity for Rishi Sunak. Um, The government then, of course, moved to put massive amounts of non-taxes, taxes on electricity to fund things like renewables, energy efficiency commitments, and rather exempted gas from that. Rishi Sunak could have actually used his budget to start saying one of the things people say is to do, we want to move to a sort of electricity-based heat system that's part of the sort of you know, new greener economy. You could start equalising some of the tax treatment between electricity, which bears a lot of these uh, quasi-taxes, and gas. And what was really noticeable was for a government that says it's committed to net zero for a treasury that is reviewing its contribution to net zero, indeed has published its interim review at the end of last year, was there was no sort of hint of any sort of supportive tax strategy around net zero. Um, You might have thought that the Chancellor might have seen a bit of an opening there with a bit of public momentum behind that as to wasn't that another area to do. Uh, Social care. A big issue where I think is another sort of, you know, issue that uh, Rishi Sunak's been a bit on the defensive. Why is the government's much vaunted, uh, not quite oven ready social care plan sort of still seem to be stuck in the freezer? It's another area where you might think actually the Chancellor wanted to start a conversation about social care and how to pay for it. Was this going to lay the ground perhaps for all those old people who've been sort of stuck at home for ages 
but who still earn uh, to start paying national insurance contributions like the rest of them. That's one of Andrew Dilnot's suggestions. You could have laid some groundwork for that. Because actually one of the really interesting things about the bounce back recovery, this is a conversation I have with Tom quite often, Tom basically is the man who is about to go and socially consume his socks off when the moment he's unlocked. Whereas I can't see any real way that I am going to bounce back enormously. Sure, I'll go back to some restaurants and stuff like that. But actually, all those theatre tickets I might have bought last year, cricket tickets, they're all gone. I'm not going to go to more cricket matches this year, more test matches. I can't go to last year's test matches this year. So basically, that's just going to stay in my savings stockpile. So I think it's a real sort of issue about that, you know, social-led economy and maybe a bit of redistribution from people like me to people like, you know, people in the middle of the income distribution might actually have helped bolster that uh, chancellorial recovery by doing that. But I think he's missed an opportunity. At the very least, it might have been quite good to have set up one or two sort of reviews of people saying, I haven't got the bandwidth to think about this now. But actually, we know we want a stronger, more resilient state. We know that this has exposed some of the areas where, frankly, we'd run the state too hot, to use Giles's phrase. We know we're going to have to fund them a bit more. Uh, we ought to pay for that because it's current spending. It's not going to be capital and actually, I'm going to set up some other people to think about that and bring back ideas and see if we can build some sort of consensus around a reshaped uh, state and tax system for the future. And I think it's a shame he didn't do that. I have to say I agree with both you and Tom on that one. It seemed a, a rare opportunity where a Chancellor wasn't under immediate pressure to show that the books were balancing and had an opportunity to start that conversation about a different balance in future. But let's move on to the third part of the Chancellor's statement, his plans for future economic growth. Now, Charles, I think from an earlier answer, I know what uh, your perspective on this may be, but what, what was your take on what we learned earlier this week about the government's objectives for growth and what they see the role of government being in that? I mean, if there's one theme, it's investment. It's a really simple idea. I mean, and it's tangible investment. I mean, one of, one of my observations, you wouldn't really tell very this very far apart from a social democratic government of the 60s or 70s that says we've got a growth and a productivity problem. Let's throw in lots of funny little tax measures to um, to sort of encourage people to invest in more plants and do more exporting and great stuff like that. I'm not really sure there's any difference in the sort of theory you can get. And I'm holding up one of Samuel Britton's old books about steering the economy in the 60s. So I know of what I speak here. Uh, so he seems to think tangible investment in places like Freeports would like fences around them where you get and I think I wish the podcast um, listeners could see the face Jill just um, pulled at the mention of Freeports um, that sort of thing works for getting growth going and I'm I, I can see how at a macroeconomic level it makes some sense business investment has been quite low in our economy then again as a former Lex columnist for the Financial Times I think investment has to have a damn good reason to do it and if there isn't a good reason nudging people along to do it more with tax incentives will just give a bung to the people who are going to anyway. And the ones that you push just over the line might not be all the best investment ideas. There's normally other reasons why people don't invest. You know, the mar your market has diminished for some reason to do with something you did this year. Or your supply chains have gotten worse for another reason connected to something you did this year. You know, investment is difficult. Otherwise, we'd all be much, much richer. And I don't think all of those answers are addressed. In fact, putting in a word for the industrial strategy, which was meant to think about these in a holistic way, 
you need to have a plan for lots of different sectors and challenges and changes in the economy if you want that investment to be forthcoming. So my hope is that this is the day for the Treasury. The Treasury has to do things this way. And in this case, it's a plan for growth that is very much cobbled together from a Whitehall call around. The business department will now get stuck in and will start crafting strategies and more considered holistic ideas. So it's not the last word in the government's plans for levelling up net zero, build Britain better and all that sort of stuff. But the first word is a bit crude. And I hope that the early sign, which is they're scrapping the Industrial Strategy Council, which would have helped oversee this, isn't a sign of how they plan to proceed because you need subtler thinking than investment is good. Here's a tax fund if you want to get the economy growing fast again. Jill, the, the Freeport's announcement did seem to be the rabbit out of Rishi Sunak's hat, although I mean, it was a well, very well-trailed rabbit. Um, do, you, do you think it can be transformative? Well, it's quite interesting. Uh, at UK and Changing Europe, where I also work, we released a report which we've had in the works for absolutely ages on uh, on uh, Monday at lunch, Monday or Tuesday at lunch. Anyway, it was slightly later than we expected, but it's been around for ages. And we got called up by a journalist because none of us had sort of reread it, you know, just before it went out. And it started with the word, the centrepiece of the budget will be free ports. And this journalist rang up and said, what do you, you know, where did you get this from? How do you know that? And we were looking at exchanging emails thinking, oh, God, should we have not had that in? <laughs> what were we thinking of? So I wrote something about saying, well, you know, it, the, the levelling up, blah, 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 blah. And so I have to say, I was really surprised when we waited through all the budget and stuff like that. And, you know, as you say, it was quite well known that there would be some sort of three-point answer. And then it was the Chancellor's punchline and sit-down line, which is usually the sort of great unveil of, after all this, I'm suddenly going to take 15 pence off this tax or do this something dramatic. And it was announcement of free ports. You know, free ports... See, I mean, the economic evidence is, I think, you know, what we might describe as mixed on the benefits of Freeport. There's certainly quite big displacement effects to go without any net creation effects. Uh, they're sort of interestingly located. Um, you know, they're primarily a benefit to places, you know, if you really take serious Freeports that have very big tariffs. We don't have very big tariffs on the sort of things of inputs and outputs, so it's not very big tariff inversion benefit you're going to deregulate a bit you're going to do that you know you sort of think it do you really want this sort of spotty growth is this really what you want maybe i mean it makes a good announcement makes eight places feel happy conversely it makes the other places that weren't selected feel not so happy um so i think it's certainly shouldn't be the big work around the big idea and i think that's actually one of the really interesting things giles keeps on very euphemistically alluding to Brexit, um, you know, in that he shares with Rishi Sunak, who also has, I think, not knowingly mentioned the B word in uh, his outings uh, over the past year and indeed sort of, you know, regards that something being done over there, notwithstanding his earlier support. What we fail to see, I think, from the government is any sort of real vision of what the economy will look like after Brexit, how to sort of, you know, actually deal with some of the undoubted fallout from Brexit and how to benefit from the opportunities. That's now David Frost's task to find and maximise the the opportunities of Brexit. We will have to see if he has time for that in, uh, you know, 
in rest breaks from his hand-to-hand combat with the European Commission over the Northern Ireland Protocol. So it's all a bit sort of, uh, uh, yeah, underwhelming, I think, would be the thing. But do read the Freeport's report on the UK and Changing Europe website by Catherine Bonnard and others, and you come away and think, if that's your big economic idea, maybe you need to go back to the big economic idea box and look for something else. Tom, one of the other could call it big economic ideas was a billion pounds for 45 new town deals. But the Chancellor has come under a lot of criticism in the last couple of days for engaging in pork barrel politics, given that the vast majority of the areas that are going to benefit from those town deals are Tory constituencies. And the Shadow Work and Pension Secretary, Jonathan Reynolds, has said there is no logic to where that money goes other than through a political ends. What's your take on this? Is that fair criticism? Uh, well, I think the first thing to say is, that, as you said, it's just a, a billion pounds. And if, if this is your, your big economic idea for levelling up, then that, um, you know, I think we're still waiting for more flesh on the bone of what that, I, what that means. I, mean, I, I think one thing this does expose is the benefits of having a transparent mechanism for allocating funds like this. Um, so we, we know that civil servants did allocate towns to a high, medium and low priority, although it wasn't that clear how, how towns got into that ranking in particular. Um, and, and then, um, even after that, it wasn't all the high-priority high group that was chosen. There were five in the low-priority group, all of which happened to be uh, in conservative seats. But I think one problem here is that even if there was nothing untowards going on, the fact that we've not got a transparent process that says that this is how we're going to select it means that there's always going to be that sort of suspicion of, of port power politics. Towns are disproportionately conservative. A very fair allocation of these deals would probably have ended up with more conservative um, seats getting it than um, non-conservative seats. But the fact that you've got this um, opaque process with you know, a bit of ministerial intervention here just just gives the whiff of something that's not quite right. And I think it's not just in this area that this government has fallen into this trap. It's the same thing that's going on with um, contracts, where a lot of contracts have been awarded directly rather than by competitive process. And there also haven't been processes for some important appointments in the pandemic response. And again, I think those sort of transparent processes are there as much to protect a government from accusations of, of cronyism or port barrel politics as they are to secure the right outcome. I think even if they even if the sort of direct award gets the right outcome or the ministerial intervention gets the right outcome, you have this suspicion of, of something not quite right. So that, that's my big takeaway uh, from this, really. I mean, Jeremy, if I could just come in on this, I used to do local government finance. We used to have this sort of, you know, we used to contort ourselves, as we said. But the rule we had to follow there was that we allocated the big government grant according to sort of, you know, general rules applicable to all authorities. And that was actually sort of testable. Uh, and one is indeed tested in the court of law. You know, was this actually a sort of, you know, of treating people equally, um, you know, and fairly. And I think this is the sort of area where quite often you actually go to get sort of arm's length body to allocate these things. So actually, it doesn't look as though the criterion is, are you going to elect a conservative? We know that, you know, there's a lot of suspicion early on in 2019, these were going to target seats. Did you succeed in electing a conservative, pass, go and collect your money? And I think it's a real danger if we do want to do a lot more sort of spatial policy that we do need to think about what the process is because otherwise it becomes a very tainted process and gives you know rise to lots of people thinking it's very unfair 
and stuff like that. And people have been noticing that there's a lot of criticism that you hear at the moment from people from the northeast to say there's a very favoured part of the northeast, which is the T, which is Teesside, which just happens to have a Conservative mayor, as opposed to slightly further north, South Shields, North Shields, places like that, which you know have made the you know potentially costly error of continuing to elect Labour MPs. Not to say that it is that someone may choose to challenge it. We may see a court challenge on all of this. But I do think government needs, and the civil servants as well, who you know act as accounting officers, there, do need to make sure that they're protecting the integrity of the way in which we do things. And that seems to be something that this government is a bit too cavalier with. Thank you. Yes, I'm sure this is a topic that the IFG will be coming back to in future. But unfortunately, that's all we have time for now for this edition of Inside Briefing Extra. My huge thanks to Jill Rutter, Giles Wilkes and Tom Pope for joining me for this discussion today. If you enjoyed this podcast, then do check out our sister podcast channel, IFG Live. We've got some terrific new episodes there, including an interview with Plaid Cymru leader Adam Price on his vision for an independent Wales and a fascinating episode on how to build on the success of the vaccine rollout. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave us a review. And do also check out all our analysis of the budget, uh, which we did earlier this week at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Thank you.